whatever activity, you know, and then you look back and you're like, wait a second, I've been working on this my entire life, you know? It's like there's some story of support, like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, if I look back in my journal, I was always planning on doing this. <laughs> Hey, it's Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. And I'm Kelly. What's up, everybody? Thanks for coming to hang out for another session, chat. I never know what to call these. It's a podcast. Yes. To hang out. And special thanks, as always, to our backers on Patreon, who throws as little as a buck an episode to help keep this stuff going. Uh, It's pretty great. At this point, we're recovering the bills, which is nice. But uh, if you drop us a buck over there, we'll... uh, You'll get an invite for our Slack. Uh, they just changed the name of these. They call them workspaces now. Our Slack workspace. Mm-hmm. It's more descriptive. It's more specific. Um, where you can hang out while we work on uh, work on the podcast. Uh, a lot of people hang out there and, and talk to us before the episode. Including uh, our guest today. Including our guest today. Yeah, I've been more aggressively trying to onboard new guests before their episode rather than after, which is how it usually goes. Yeah, I... But uh, that third voice you heard is our friend Kelly Gardner. But it sounds like you got something to say, so I'm going to bail out. No, of no, I wasn't bailing. I was just trying to <laughs> protect myself on the Slack thing because I'm still trying to figure out how Slack is work, work in Slack, you know, the, the whole concept of it. I, I went to it to check it out, but uh, then I realized it was just a hangout spot. So was am I working? Am I not working? I, it, it got really confusing, this whole Slack as work thing. I'm, I'm <laughs> which is both the strength and the weakness of the platform. But I guess I find it to be less of a trade-off than I experience with email. Mm. Oh boy, it's much better <laughs> than email. Mm. Yeah. The, 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 chal- <laughs> Necessary the challenge of all of our lives, clearing the inbox. <laughs> so, so Kelly is a friend of mine from the filmmaking side of my, or generally production, right? Because it's not just films. But the that side of everything that I've ever done, uh, we met we met in film school, which I realized as I was thinking about the, how to do an intro for this, like you, you went to film school about the same time, like age and life experience wise, I went to law school. And so it, it gave me perspective on how different your film school experience <laughs> must have been from my you know, goofy ass, fresh out of college. I'm going to be a director. I'm sure you were sitting there the whole time going, uh-huh, <laughs> sure, kid. <laughs> yeah, there was, it was interesting. You know, you get, most of you were in, in your early twenties uh, and I was just hitting 30. And uh, so I did have a slightly different experience. I think the big thing as I'm a, a college professor now, uh, I was really aware of the fact that a three hour class is a really long time. <laughs> And if you're going to take three hours of my time when I'm 30, uh, it better be really good three hours of time. Uh, and at 25, it was like, yeah, whatever, three hours, I can kill three hours. You know? uh, and so it was a little bit of a different experience, but uh, it was definitely something. The important, I think the big difference was I had a, a, a clear idea of why I wanted to be in film school, uh, where I think everyone's like, let's just make movies, you know, let's, hmm. let's do it. It's, it's right there. It's accessible. And, and it is, uh, but it was a little, little bit of a different experience, uh, because I was, I was going there expressly to try to tell stories that I thought would have a positive effect on society, 
uh, and to really engage the work that I'd been doing in social change and move it from from theater work, uh, where I was impacting people on a one-on-one basis, to really having an effect on a large audience and and really trying to figure out how do we translate this this engagement uh, to a mass media and have a bigger impact. And I'm still trying to figure that out today. You you didn't finish the program, no, right? No, actually. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, we were a lot we of were us the, uh, We were fellow dropouts that year. I remember it was. Uh, Is that a fairly standard thing with film school now that you're um, on the academic it, side? I'd say it's maybe more standard than other places. I think that, you know, what I say to. I'm now the dean of students at a film school, which I always find is really interesting. I dropped out of film school to become <laughs> the dean of another film school. <laughs> yeah, to run a yeah. film school. <laughs> help other budding entrepreneurs drop out of film school. <laughs> exactly. Most, you know, every budding entrepreneur dropped out of something at some point to realize that the important thing was not the accreditation, but the making their dreams come true. And so, you know, every day as the Dean of Students, I have to see people that are going through problems that are standing in their way of getting their goals met. Uh, and so what I position with them all the time is if you're in trouble, really what, what the challenge is, is recognizing you didn't come to film school because you wanted to get a degree. You came to film school because you had a dream and you wanted that dream to come true. And so something is standing in your way of you reaching your dream. So this is really important. So we got to figure out what's going on inside of you. Um, and so compassionate communication has been a big part of my journey, helping people to understand how their communication is standing in their way or not helping them to get to where they want to go and finding communication that helps them connect to human beings in a way that can help them achieve their goals and their dreams. But I had a very, I think we were the first, my wave of filmmakers was the first to hit film school after the sort of widespread advent of or widespread availability of digital mm. cameras. So like I've been shooting stuff on camcorders in my backyard, you know, since very young developmental years, uh, Brian was roped into, to many of them. <laughs> but, but so we got there and, and there were these classes where it, it, school was based largely around just access to the technology. So it was a lot of like, this is a video camera. And we were all going, we know, can we just make something? And they were going, oh, that starts next year, right? Like, and, and I don't blame them. That's how it, you used to have to go through. Like, it's, it's complicated to learn that technology unless you've been using it since you were 12. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I got started but, in what I always call uh, the digital revolution. When I first started teaching, you know, it was a time when everything was changing in filmmaking because previous to just to make a movie, uh, you had to have this really incredibly expensive equipment. You know, that's why it was the area of the studios and just a, the limited few. But once the the cost of a production camera went down and down and down and, you know, look at 35 millimeter film, you know, it costs a dollar a foot to process uh, 35 millimeter film. So if you're shooting, let's say a 500 foot roll that will equal out to uh, or 400 foot mag, it's going to equal out to about five minutes worth of footage then just the film alone is going to cost you $500, $400 for that five minutes. That's not counting the camera, the operator, and all those other things. And if you're shooting a five-minute film, we should normally shoot about a 10 to 1 ratio. So you're looking at about 4,000 uh, feet worth of film for $4,000 just for that five-minute film. 
No, it just wasn't accessible. But when you can buy a camera for $5,000 and just keep making movies over and over, that's a revolution because. And throwing away the ones exactly. that aren't good. Like we, we talk about in the context of, of still photography all the time. We, we used to roll our, our, our own film in high school just to save money on film. The idea of shooting a thousand pictures in a weekend was bananas to us. It was just too expensive to try. And now that's my advice for people is like gun for a thousand pictures. Try to take a ridiculous number of pictures because th that'll get you into that space of like, I don't care. I don't know. I'll try it. Whatever. Don't overthink it. For, uh, for um, my own is, just not context, how long physically is 36 frames on 35 millimeter film? Is that like three feet, four feet? Oh gosh, you know, I haven't thought about the actual length. Uh, I guess we could do the I geometry. Think the, I think quick, the length but... and the time, right? So all <laughs> yeah. I can think of is, as I always remember, it's, it's 400 feet in 35 equals about uh, five minutes. Uh, so... And so when people ask what producers do, it, it, it's it for me, it's always been an exercise in problem solving. And so when I got to school and I just had and I was like, OK, I want to make money at this. And what I just realized is I'm still ahead enough with digital that I can go start making stuff and charge film prices and shoot at this rate where, you know, so like when I first started you could still charge $20,000 for something that's now probably normalized down to six or seven because video is widely understood. So that was my racket coming off of film school. <laughs> but, but the, uh, the problem solving piece is what I think gets us to, uh, what Kelly, you were, you were saying that you wanted to talk about in terms of the, what you're just saying about even as your function, at, your, your function at the school in terms of like, why did you, I think filmmaking is a profession that draws people that have sort of wide-eyed, you know, dream. It's so associated with this stuff, you know, the silver screen, movies, music, this this stuff that's super influential generally in most like teenagers' lives. It's a it's a huge part of pop culture. That's what you're constantly consuming yeah. at that age. Right? And, and it's pretty big, pretty big part. Um, and it is, and it's kind of changing. You know, I think this this generation doesn't know entertainment the way that we knew entertainment you know i grew up with blockbuster video where you were force fed mm -hmm. certain movies that you were going to watch because there were 300 of those on the aisle and only one of the independent features and you were never going to get a chance to see that one you know or hbo and, and that was you had to sit down in front of the television a certain time to watch uh, but this generation is choosing their media which i think is really fascinating but getting back to the story piece i think that you know, everybody has a story to tell you know, every single student that comes through the the doors, I, you know, I say, I believe that you've got a story to tell, whether it's inside your, your gut or in the back of your brain, there's something that you're dying to tell people about. And that's probably why you're here because you're a storyteller. Uh, but we are all storytellers and we all have a story and the, the stories that, that really move us are what got us interested in telling stories to others because we were wanting to make that connection, wanting to get people to feel what we felt when we saw a good story, a story that really impacted us. Uh, and that's really, I think what, what, what is what people are going to, to film school for now. I, I, it's interesting that we call it film school, right? Because nobody actually shoots on film anymore. You know, we should be calling it video school. Right. You know, we should be going, we're all going to video school and film is now still like an exactly. artistic luxury. It's a thing you commit to on purpose for an aesthetic, 
but it's usually like in my world, it's like I, I have a, a fridge full of 16 millimeter film all the time that I'm still just like, <laughs> oh, I could use that for something real cool at some point. <laughs> I also, though, own a 16 millimeter camera, which is a weird thing that's not as, as oh, common I anymore. But that used to be like the barrier to entry. People would, we would lust after 16 millimeter cameras on eBay. Like, <laughs> and now literally your cell phone, everybody is walking around with a cell phone that has the same technology as the cameras we were using when we were in film school 10 years ago. That's a really interesting part of this that I don't think people appreciate enough unless they were doing photography and videography prior to smartphones because I very distinctly remember as a kid, I, I didn't do a lot of videography or really any that I can think of, um, but I did a lot of photography and I remember how uh, impactful it was when someone did have a camera at an event and even more so, which was even less frequent when someone would later show up with those pictures, <laughs> everyone would, would fawn over them, right? You'd gather around these 24 shots from the evening from one event of like 50 that you had been to that year that actually got photographed. And now it's, I mean, they're, they're apps, they're web apps that will stitch together photos from parties to create 3d scenes. Cause there's, there's so many images being taken. And I, I think most people don't realize how important those images are based on how important they seemed at the time when they were so rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, it, it's kind of a, as the, it's like the psychological or uh, sociological idea of as the numbers increase, the social responsibility decreases, right? Uh, as you know, like when, when you had that film camera and you had 36 shots, every shot mattered, you know, and you thought really carefully about what that shot was going to be before you took it. Uh, and with the digital camera, it's like, Hey, just take a thousand shots and just see what, see whatever you get. I, I, I just discovered this feature on live photos now. I didn't know that you could do this. You can actually choose the exact moment of the photo that you want. When you know, I have two small children, so it's it's perfect, right? I, I was never really good at photography because I could never capture that perfect moment, you know. But now you can just you take your live photo and then you just scroll through to figure out where the wow. perfect moment is, and and now it's all there. When you capture just so much, you can. there's becomes it's more about the editing process than it is about the actual capturing process if uh, but i think that that has a negative effect in a lot of ways because we think less about each and every moment uh and there's a kind of a, a a gray middle that everything is becoming rather than remembering that oh my gosh this this picture is really important and if i get this over to my friend they're really gonna like it and now it's this point of if i don't get those pictures out on time i'm the bad friend because everybody's <laughs> doing it, you know? That is absolutely... If you don't get them mm-hmm. out in real right. time. <laughs> That's a big problem that I face all the time because I I take a, a nice digital SLR with me places. I don't tend to shoot or share from my smartphone. And so I won't post pictures for weeks sometimes. <laughs> and so my general rule now at parties is like, no, I don't take portrait... I'm not like taking a group yeah. shot. Sorry, I'm not, use a phone. I'm not the wedding photographer. <laughs> yeah. If you want these to get I'll, out tomorrow. If I catch something cool, it'll show up in an album <laughs> later and you can go, oh, yeah, oh, that happened. Yeah. Hey, yeah, I, that was cool. Yeah, the what you're talking about, the sequencing, is a thing that well, Jones and I used to shoot a lot of sports photography. 
which relates to another reason that I think at least I was in to photography at that age. It gave you something to do. You could go to a <laughs> dance. Like we, we both worked for the paper. So you could go to a dance and you could just be like, no, I'm just, I'm just, just, just I'm not work. awkward. I'm taking photos Game. over here in the corner. Yeah. All these social functions where otherwise I would be awkwardly trying to talk to girls in a, you know, in a terrifying situation. It was easier to just be like, oh shit, every once in a while and leave with the camera, to, you know. But what we used the lust after was this burst mode that you could afford to do if you had a camera budget enough to use the function that existed on your camera where it would just go and take 15 pictures every time you held the yeah. shutter down. And then you just pick up the 15. So with sports, like that's how they get those ridiculous pictures of the of the of a tackle or a mid-air catch. They just see it starting to happen and go over that moment and then pick the one that's perfect. Or don't make money if it turns out there wasn't a perfect one. <laughs> I, uh, I, it's funny that you mentioned that particular feature, Kelly, uh, about being able to pick the frame. Because I remember, I don't know if this was on <clears throat> an early, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know if this was on an early episode of our podcast or just sometime in the last like four or five years, uh, I was in a conversation maybe with Adam uh, and someone described that conceptually and they said, that's where cameras are going. And I had never had that thought before uh, that the whole concept of photography as capturing individual frames was ultimately going to go away. Mm. Um, and it it has happened now uh, on the latest release of iOS. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you can just scan and pick a live frame at whatever, 36 frames per second. Um, that's, a, that's a big... It's a big shift, but it also... It speaks to a really common theme on our podcast, which is uh, the reproduction of reality. Mm. There's something that's driving all of humanity, all of the universe to reproduce, reproduce itself. Um, we already talked to... Including right. itself. <clears throat> like, it seems like the guiding force is to reproduce <laughs> even just the notion of reality. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it, we're trying to make um, sense out of our reality. I mean, you know, Joseph Campbell really talked about there being four functions of the myth, right? There's a reason why we tell story. Right? There's the mystical. We want to understand that which we can't understand, God, whatever you want to call it. There's the the cosmological, just understanding the world around us and, and making sense of this weird world that keeps changing. And because it keeps changing, we need new people to tell the story. There's the sociological, how do we interact with the people that are around us? What's our moral responsibility to those people? And then the ped pedagogical, or uh, you know, how are we supposed to live this life? Or as everybody's talking about on podcasting now, optimize. How do you optimize your life? You know, um, But that's what stories kind of do for us. We're recreating our lives to make more sense out of it, that there's some purpose, as you know, Joseph Campbell says, you know, caveman wasn't just sitting around hanging out by the fire because we got free time. Let's have some entertainment. You know, there was a purpose for telling stories. Uh, yeah, they were passing data back and forth. Important things you needed to know so that so that life like so that technology could. Yeah, I mean, Hansel and Gretel wasn't like just a, a you know, a scary story. <laughs> it was like, stay the fuck out of the woods or you're going to get eaten. You know, like <laughs> it had a purpose. Really good so, summary of the story. <laughs> yeah, so what you're I feel like what you're looking at when you go to study the stuff that we've studied in this space is the technique by which you use different communication medium or media to 
uh, tell stories. Like, why is a photo the perfect right moment, right? It's like, because that's where the story is. Oh, shit, is he going to catch the ball? Like, it's not, you know, and so with photos, it's largely about trying to set up that one still moment. With the kid, that's hard to do, which is why that feature is relevant for you, right? Like, it's the same with the dog. Yo, yo, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Instead, you can just, okay, I know it's in there somewhere. Because the head passed through that look at me plane. And then went back. I just did a, vi- <laughs> a thing on video that I wish everyone else could see. Um, filmmaking makes it so you can follow that motion, right? This, it adds this time component. So if you want to tell a story in that, it gets way more complicated to control the variables. Like photography is in a studio if you really need to. It'll be similar to filmmaking, I guess. But like sports photography, you're just out in the world hoping you can catch it. And if you didn't freeze it in that instant, then you can't even just like clean it up and post to try to make it look good. To And that's why I have, a lot, more, I have a lot of respect um, for still photographers, because the capturing of that moment is really so challenging. You know, it really always comes down to relationships, whether it's filmmaking or still photography. What you're really trying to capture is that relationship between that human being and the people around them, their environment. You know, when you talk about trying to capture that you know, when he caught that ball, it's the relationship between that individual and that ball and how they see that thing coming in. And that's what you're trying to capture in that one moment. You know, whereas with film, it's like, I just put my camera and eventually that moment is going to unfold in front of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, I think in many ways, it's it's even more difficult with film to to get that absolutely right. But it's always about understanding the the relationship of a human being to an object, object to a human being, or a human being to another human being. Uh, that's what we're really paying attention to when we're looking at these images. And so what I really try to get people to do is is think really critically about what's really going on in the image. What's the image conveying to you? What's What are you really taking in? Because whatever it is that you're taking in is causing some effect and you're going to make some choice around that that thing that you took in, you know, cause and effect in some certain way. Hey, Jones. Did you ever, did you ever disconnect your eyes? Excuse me. Were you ever <laughs> able to train yourself to, so to shoot sports oh, yeah. photography, one of the things they tell you to do is keep your eyes yeah. open so you can watch the game with one eye and your yeah, frame you with the other camera. It takes training, but your brain will separate those two and process them as different signals. If you do it long enough, mine has I faded. I tried every once thought of it like that, but I was definitely doing that. Right. Cause you have to have the wide view of yeah. one eye to watch the game while you're framing things with the other one. How the, so yeah, I, how the play is I definitely used to do that. I was thinking about that while we were talking about, it. I never thought of it as disconnecting my eyes. <laughs> but from an artistic standpoint, I think the, or uncoupling your eyes is what it would really be because you're not disconnecting them from the <laughs> disconnect, magazine. remove. You're uncoupling them from one another. Um, I came to filmmaking through the the sort sort of well, like technical f- like form side because of still photography, and so I, I I my obsession was cameras and the frame and how you you know the the like you just said what's in what's in the image. Um, what I went to school to study, and I don't think I had the frame of reference to to be prepared to study at the time, was directing. And directing is like partially technical because you have to be able to get your head around how that image is conveyed, which is the part I felt like I had down. Although it has since improved to the point that I'm like, <laughs> nope, didn't have that down either. But 
But the idea of that program that I think I was just not prepared for was was to learn the storytelling piece. The first year was about script writing and acting classes and directing classes. And, and I was so itchy to make things that I bailed. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's that story piece, right? So you, once the thing moves through time, you have you have to worry about emotion. You have to worry about all these things that like, I mean, it's it's part of photography because it's contained in that frame, ideally, but it's you know, it's, it's not, it's hard to catch that, but then it's also kind of limited. Like once you've poured over everything you can possibly see in the short story of a photograph, like you've kind of seen it. It doesn't keep me from having photographs mm -hmm. I love on my wall, but I know everything that's going on in that picture after a little while. Film now like moves through time and it makes it an even better way to process like what you're saying before, like why we need stories is because Mm -hmm. It's it's why we need philosophy, because there's there's this like margin where whatever is happening with technology, as cool as it might be, smashes into the squishy human space of like, yeah, I, you know, we can we, we run studies and maybe that data kind of helps. And that happens more and more with health now where it didn't used to. But like. It still is once you're in this emotional space, yeah, I mean, there's, you know all the data is squishy to a point that it's easy to be like, yeah, you know, I mean, you, you go to a science conference <laughs> and it's not a bunch of pie, pie charts up on the board. You know, it's people telling stories about, you know, the, the experiments they did and how they found the results. And that's the way we communicate the ideas, whatever it is, whether, you know, it's, it's, actually making a movie and telling a story in that format, or, you know, trying to communicate to your friend why you had this problem and you can't seem to find a solution. You don't just go, well, I had X and Y variable. And, you know, you say, well, listen, you know, I, I started out and I was, I was trying to do this, but my coffee spilled and, you know, this happened and blah, blah, blah. Why do we tell the story? Because the story is really what is how we communicate what's really alive in us, what's going on. You know, that's, that's, and so I, as I tell my filmmaking students is regardless of whether you become a filmmaker, the, the knowledge of how to tell a story is going to serve you in your life. If you have a business, you've got to tell the story of that business. If you've got a, 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 a bio, you've got to tell your own story. If you, whatever it is, the language that we use to communicate who we are in this world is storytelling. And every story is based around the simple idea of somebody wants something, Something stands in their way of getting it, and they either achieve it or they don't achieve it. If you break it down that simply, you can see that everything in life is a story. You know, and what's also interesting is I say, you know, somebody wants something and something stands in their way of getting it, right? It's like that obstacle is something that's so essential to the human experience that we've got to find, we've got to find it in telling our story. We can't just like, yeah, I had this great day. <laughs> okay well that that speaks to the uh the bigger uh philosophical implications for our lives right it's not about like like a lot of people say it's not about the thing it's not about having the thing it's about the journey right it's the fulfillment of accomplishing something and feeling uh feeling like you've done a good job or feeling like you've gotten somewhere that you were meant to be uh and then we kind of reset and then mm -hmm. you need a new story. Yeah. And that's, I mean, the hero's journey is, is a circle. It's not a, uh, it's not a, a straight line. You know, when you, when the hero achieves their, their goal, 
they receive a boon, something that they can bring back to their society, their, to their community, and somehow enrich their community so that they can then start a new journey all over again. And, and that's that's our lives. You know, it's like we, we work out this problem, we solve it or we don't solve it. We learn from it. We go back with the information that we've learned and we try again, maybe the same thing. If we're stuck in that cycle <laughs> or that loop, you know, uh, and we're and if we're too super obsessed with it, they call us nerds and make fun of us for dressing up and going to conventions. <laughs> we, we pray the nerds will inherit uh, the earth, right? <laughs> it's interesting that the repeating story arcs, the little mini story arcs of our lives, seem to be circular in that sense. <clears throat> yet we're stuck. Uh, at least how we seem to perceive time as just a straight line of, hey, I'm headed that direction and it's going to end someday, um, as opposed to maybe a like the concept of reincarnation, which fits really well with what seems to be so compelling for our brains while we're alive hearing stories of repeat, wash and repeat. Yeah, I mean, religions are essentially our first stories. They are the, mm -hmm. the ways that we started to make sense out of the mystical and the cosmological. It's a way that we tried to, before we had science, we had stories that would make sense out of this world around us because it made no sense. You know? And so that whole idea of reincarnation was, you know, a way of thinking about it. You know, I, I love this in the, in the, uh, in the Hindu tradition, you know, you, you basically keep going until you get it right. You know, it's a great idea, right? It's like, all right, you, you did okay this this lifetime around. And, I mean, you were fortunate <laughs> enough to be incarnated as a human being. That's pretty pretty much amazing. Uh, but you didn't quite get there, so try it again. And this time you didn't quite get there, but you learned a few more things. Try it again. And ultimately, the idea is that if you eventually get it, then you'll you'll reach nirvana, and then you'll you'll be removed from the suffering of having to reincarnate over and over to try to figure it out. But I experience this every single day in my life. You know, I, I like to say the universe gives me lessons, you know, it's like, Oh, this happened to me for a reason. Right. I, I got the lesson. And then it happens to me again. I'm like, okay, I got it. Thank you. I got the lesson. You know, and then you get <laughs> smacked over the head with it again. You're like, okay, all right, already. I got it. I got it. And like, Clearly you didn't get it. You are going to reincarnate and play that, <laughs> that, that story out as many times as it takes for you to actually get it, you know? And that's, I mean, that's the kind of the process of the storytelling is it's, it's help. It's how we make sense of why we do it. That sure seems like the same. It sure seems like the same construct as the, mm -hmm. the scientific yeah. method. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Try it over again, try it over again. But I think one feature that, that comes from the storytelling piece that I think consistently conflicts with what we think of as technological advancement is the idea of the, the obstruction we used to do exercises called obstruction exercises in, in film school where they would say, okay, you're not allowed to do this normal camera thing. Now try to tell a story. But also that's part of the story in that if you don't, if you don't put things in the way, mm -hmm. then there's nothing for your character to do. They just, they just yeah. keep walking. I, I... But it seems like technology is constantly chasing uh, like this, this idea of comfort. This idea of no more obstructions. Oh, those obstructions are so much work. <laughs> I hate, let's get them out of life. And then I feel like the job of philosophy is on the other side of that to just keep tapping them on the back of the head and going, yeah, but the whole thing is about obstructions. So if, I, if you don't have work to do, you end up miserable also because you just reset to 
this is your status quo. I think you're on to an interesting uh, uh, concept for modern which I think American is like- living, which is we, one could argue we've removed all of the actual obstacles. And that's why everyone's obsessed with things that seem so trivial and meaningless. And why even if they don't recognize it, they're miserable <laughs> because they're not facing real challenges. The obstacles are necessary. When they're not there, we will go looking for them because we know innately that the story needs to have obstacles. So, you know, we get in our own way. We create them. I, so I did my first triathlon last year. Um, and uh, I something I've been saying for years that I was going to do and finally got rid of all the obstacles uh, and decided to do it. Uh, but I realized as I was getting closer that it was a little easier than I than I had hoped it was going to be. It mean that I, I trained, I was in good shape and uh, and it was just a, it was a international. It wasn't that long. Uh, and so I went about on the day of the triathlon, basically putting every obstacle in my way. Uh, you know, I, I, I forgot to, to put my cap. I, I got late to the transition area. I, I started at the very beginning of the wave and lost my goggles with everybody swimming on top of me. I, <laughs> I did everything that you possibly could do wrong. I, I, and I, I think I really did it on purpose because I was building up this idea in my head that this was going to be a really amazing experience, that I was going to overcome this incredible challenge, this big hurdle. And so because it was, wasn't the hurdle I was expecting, I, I basically made it more difficult for myself so that when I got across that finish line, I could be like, oh my God, I've accomplished something incredible. It really wasn't that hard. It was just me making it hard so that I could feel like I had this incredible accomplishment. And we do that in small ways every single day. We create those obstacles just so we can feel like it was something really beneficial uh, because we've biohacked ourselves out of every normal conflict that we can have. And so now we're, we're just looking for, like you say, perhaps the trivial ones so we can feel like there's been some real accomplishment. I don't have accomplishment if I don't overcome something. Well, and so triathlon is how we reconnected over after many years of not really hanging out. Although I worked with Kelly a bunch when we were doing uh, production stuff together. Um, you posted a video about the, the triathlon experience to which I immediately said, sweet, let's go for a ride. <laughs> is what I do to anyone that mentions cycling in my, in my <laughs> circle of friends. Um, and we basically talked about a lot of this kind of stuff, which is, a, which is you know, made me reflect on my own sports career and in a situation like swimming where you have multiple races in a day, you have an increased number of iterations to dial that stuff in. So by the end of a career, it's like, you see athletes doing things that to normal people look like ticks, like retying their boot, their suit twice, but it's just the way that they can go, tied it, untied it, tied it. It is absolutely not a problem. <laughs> now I don't have to think about it. I'm just going to race. I had that for my goggles. I had it for my cap. I had a whole, there was a whole process where if it was off by like, oh shit, they're halfway through announcing the, the round right before me and I don't have my cap on, now I'm fucking up. So they So they're like a double-edged sword in that, if it's all dialed in, it relieves you of the the jitters and stress of a situation that is inherently nerve wracking. But then if you if you screw it up, and this is what I used to struggle with, you just completely your head's it's you're gone. And you're into that space where like, no, now I'm thinking things I shouldn't be thinking before yeah, race. I mean, the flip side <laughs> is, you know, we take care of all the little stuff so we can focus on the big stuff. You know, we we 
organize ways to make sure that all the little distractions don't come in so that I can really just focus on the most important distraction, the most important obstacle, which are the other six, seven, eight guys lined up beside me and how I'm going to get to that wall before they do. And that's really, if I can clear my mind of all the other little distractions and I can just focus on this one story, you know, there's another interesting thing that I think happens with, uh, sports and athletics and, uh, physical competitive activities where when you're in the moment, if you're distracted by something artificial, like the fact that we have invented shoes or swimming goggles or swim fins or whatever, uh, your conscious brain gets in the way of what you spent six months training to do. Uh, six months training, like the limbs of your body to carry out without your conscious thought. And so the story you're in sometimes, I think when you're playing sports, uh, or participating in an activity like a triathlon, um, you are just along for the ride of the sport in a lot of sense, which is a really interesting space where I think most of the time we think of being along for the ride when you're visually stimulated, like you're watching a movie or you're reading a book, but your body's not doing anything. And sports are kind of a different a different way for your brain to be told a story um, where you really get to physically participate. It's, it's the zen of it, right? You know, I, I do think about that a mm-hmm. lot when I'm training is how do I, how do I let go of thought? How do I, can I be completely present in this moment and experiencing, you know, what's going on in this moment, aside from all the crazy stories that are spinning, you know, when I'm going up that, that giant mountain and I'm saying, oh, my legs are telling me right now, I can't do this. Uh, my gut right now is telling me you should probably stop. Uh, you know, my, my, the sweat on my back is telling me you've overdone it, you know, but there's this story inside of me saying, you know what, you're capable of anything you put your mind to how you do anything is how you do everything, you know, and, and suddenly those, those stories of inspiration start bubbling up, you know, and then you're like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And you can literally trick your body into being able to do things that you are completely incapable of. It's like, you know, when that, 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 you know, family member gets trapped under a car and suddenly some a person can lift that car you know because you've told them that's that yourself this story that if i don't do this that person's going to die and i have to save them and so suddenly your body's capable of doing things that you never could do because you believed in that story that much you know i, I think a lot about the placebo effect right it's a, the best drug that we know of Right. is our body's mm-hmm. ability to heal ourselves when we think we have a cure. It's interesting where that collides with science in this space. Well, I have a very specific but sciencey version of that sort of story where I wanted to be faster at the 50-meter freestyle. It's one length of an Olympic-sized pool. The race takes 23, 24 seconds, which physiologically speaking – is before your body even starts to use oxygen for any of the metabolic processes that are pushing you forward. There is no reason you need to breathe, but you want to breathe like crazy about 18 seconds in. So that was what I kept, the the science of it is what I kept thinking about as I trained myself to be able to do that whole race without breathing, which I think I could probably still do. It's that much ingrained in my, you know, like, whatever psyche but yeah it was it was the story provided by science that i certainly can't verify other than i never passed out but it helped me push through that but then i think like where it turns into his engineering topic the whole thing is 
all of our technology seems obsessed with recreate, like we talked about recreating reality, but it's, it's to make stuff out of the stuff around us. And, and, and we end up using that to tell stories because stories are really important to us. And we've created this, this media ecosystem now where like every time I see people composing a perfect selfie, like as I'm driving through, like living in LA, you drive past landmarks where they're just always people going, you know, taking selfies in front of them, even if they're just palm trees, <laughs> like you could hang out all day by the Beverly Hills sign and just see a stutter, like a study in modern media consumption behavior. Like every time I have the impulse to feel like, Oh God, it's so, you know, like, ugh, who cares about your story? <laughs> like, like, which I think is the reaction to people's shitty reaction to social media. I try to offset with that, offset that with this idea that like, at least everyone is creating. But because there's so many people creating, now we don't know how to wade into that stuff without it making us unhappy. And Jones, you put up an article that we'll put in the show notes that, I didn't read, but the title was enough that I spent two days like, like ruminating on it. I was just like, but it said, uh, is modern media a DOS attack on the senses? I also didn't read that yet. So we're, we're equal. <laughs> um, <laughs> really compelling title, though. But so uh, a denial of service attack is a hack that you can employ if you want to try to bring down an online service and you do it by just hitting the server with so many requests from so many different places that it, it can't handle it and it jams up basically. And so I think it's that idea of like, we have, we, we so crave those input sources that we just use largely for sitcoms up to this point, like to, to, to bring these stories into our lives. We, we talked about before the camera, uh, before we started rolling uh, about the sweet irony that is the success of friends um, because it's a sitcom called friends and sitcoms generally function in this way where you, like you, uh, you relate to the stories of those characters as if they're your friends. The sensation that makes you want to go watch a sitcom is very like, I'm going to go hang out with my, my set of predictable buddies that will do, you know, I feel the same way about podcasting. Feel nice. You know, I, I drive to work every day and <laughs> I listen to a, a ton of podcasts. I'm, I'm going from Venice to Burbank. So I, I've got two hours in the car almost every day. Uh, and I've come to know these characters like they're friends of mine, you know, like I have all of these really intelligent friends that, you know, that hang out with me and have really great conversations. And I feel like I'm part of the conversation, you know? Uh, and if one of those podcasters was were to go off the, off the air, I would be like, oh my God, I'm, I'm missing my buddy. You know, like I don't know this person and I feel like I know this person. I feel like I have this real connection. Uh, and I was saying before we started that, you know, there's this real thing that happens when one of those shows goes off the air, uh, people go through depression, you know, they spend more time with these characters than they do with their own family members. Uh, and so it's, it's that real connection. That's it's what we're all striving for. I think it's hard to get your head around that at a young age sometimes too. Cause like uh, the, if you, you should as an exercise, dear listener, you should go find a place that you can watch a show that was on for 11 seasons and just, you don't even have to watch the whole thing. Just dip in like two or three a season. But I, I have been rewatching cheers. So I was just, thinking. which ran for 12 seasons 
24 half hour episodes a season. And I don't know if they ever even left the bar. (laughs) Like it's just this running stage play of characters, like maybe a a few few novel episodes left the bar, but mostly it was just this group of weirdos, like Mm -hmm. talking out their conflicts in a bar. Which is, you know, sort of always sunny as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what happens when Game of Thrones goes off this season. It's its final season, you know, and and I, I know a lot of people around me are going to have serious depression uh, until they get the spinoff. I was seriously bummed for a few days when uh, Halt and Catch Fire ended, which is probably a show that a lot of people just went, huh? <laughs> Except like one or two that I know listen, and I've <laughs> talked to about this before, but you should watch you know, that show. It's it, I cried at the it end. It hit me of, in a way that I was bummed out when it ended. I remember watching Firefly the first time, which is only like amazing episode. episodes, I think. I watched all 13 back to back over like a seven day period, two times through. And then I think I just cried. <laughs> I, just I was crying with was, you. I, I, no I felt more. the same way when that I was like, come on, give us another season. And they, they made the movie. But, you know, it's like, well, but you're just recapping the season. Uh, I want more. <laughs> Uh, Brian and I have repeatedly talked about if we we've both at different times gone back to rewatch all of Star Trek The Next Generation. And I always slow down near the end because I'm like, oh, no, it's going to stop again. (laughs) Um, But I think there's another story in here. So, you know, like to wrap up to a moral kind of thing is engineering like okay what the hell do you what do we make of all this in the modern world of of this technology and this dos attack part of it the uncomfortable place you got to go first is something we talked about also before we started rolling which is you know there are if stories are the way that we process the squishy stuff that we can't turn into systems of science or science will only at best ever be advice for like you, you get to a thing that we've talked about before, particularly because at the time we were pissed about something that happened to a buddy of ours, but like, you can't, you you can't not tell stories about Alzheimer's because they make some people uncomfortable because it's the thing that happens in life. And so how do you like, so what do you do with this idea of here are the things we shouldn't tell stories about because of, you know, quote decency. And here are the things that you have to let be so that we can continue to talk about them because we're never going to just have a, like a line in the sand scientific hundred percent of the time this kills you, you don't know, do I, it. I think you, you hit on something with that, that uh, DOS attack, which I feel like is common is our modern media, right? Is that we get so many stories that are thrown at us. And I feel like there's, there's certain people in political parties that just, they keep throwing us stories and if you, you get enough stories, you'll be confused as to what's the actual reality. So I can't believe anything because there's enough enough stories that have been sent at me and, and I get a denial of service. I just, I, I shut down and I don't want to listen to anything. Um, and I think that's a real part of our lives that we're living in right now. Uh, and the result of that has become that uh, we, I, I often say that there's only one person anybody ever listens to and that's themselves. And as long as there's somebody out there who's telling you what you believe is absolutely true, then you really don't have to listen to anybody else because you're right. Uh, and I think that's a that's a, a really difficult thing that's happening right now. Uh, and I think that this last election really played that out, you know, that this side is right, this side is right. And there was never anywhere meeting in the middle. There was no, there's no conversation and there's no conversation in our politics right now. You know, the, we're not talking across the aisle that, that 
that art of communicating with somebody who has a different idea has really been lost. Um, and I think that, as I was saying before, every single story is important, but we also have to look at how we tell the stories. You know, uh, I was talking about um, rape culture earlier on and, and the idea that we live in a culture that says it's okay to take things with force. And that's essentially where we start looking at the culture of rape is that taking things with force is acceptable under certain circumstances. Now, it's one thing to to look at these films. And a lot of times when you look at films that deal with sexual assault and abuse, they're they're really difficult and, and very challenging and, and, and hard to watch in many ways. But they're also putting out images that are 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 very challenging to what we want to do as a society. You know, I, I was looking at a lot of these films because I, I was working on a video essay about this and, and recognized that a lot of the films that were dealing with sexual assault, the images and the content was very sexually explicit. And as a 13-year-old boy, I don't know how to deal with that. Uh, you know, I'm looking at scantily clad women and thinking, ooh, I'm getting a little aroused. But, oh, my God, this is something that's really bad. And I don't know what to do with that. You know, so there is there's the telling of the story, but there's also the responsibility of the reaction that the human being is going to have to the story. When I teach storytelling, you know, I say, mm -hmm. that, well, I, we stole this from Sandy McKendrick. Uh, the only mistake that you can make is to elicit a response that you didn't want. If you want people to cry and they start laughing, you made a mistake. You know, there's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. You know, <laughs> there's, there is no rule about making telling a story. The rule is that you're trying to elicit an emotional response from your audience. And so if you elicit the wrong response, then you've made a mistake. And I think that we have to be really critical about what or what's the intention behind the stories that we're seeing? And a lot of people will take the out and say, oh, it's just entertainment. It doesn't really matter. We just, we just want to, we want to check out. And I think that's a, that's a problem that stories aren't our way of checking out. It's our way of checking in. It's our way of having a deeper understanding of who we are and what we want to do in this world and communicating that to other people. And when we're doing it just for entertainment value, we lose the important roles that it has. It was Joseph Campbell was talking about the, the functions of the myth. We've got to have some social responsibility around the stories that we're telling because they're having real effects on people's lives. You know, when when <laughs> I remember the first time I, I played Grand Theft Auto, right? I don't know if you had this experience, right? You you play Grand Theft Auto for like 13 hours, you know, and then you go get in your car and you almost run somebody over and you're like, holy God, what happened to me? I was a normal driver, you know? <laughs> Where's I'm, the money? In that story, you know, why am I trying to run somebody off the road? I don't know. It just got, it became a part of me that it's subconsciously becoming a part of us, whether we want to recognize it or not. You know, I come out of a, a, you know, same thing, first person shooter games, you know, I come around uh, every now and then I'm now I'm looking around the corner thinking about what's my angle on, on the person in case I need to shoot them. That might be problematic. When the zombie right? apocalypse happens, I, but, that'll be but, a really useful skill set. So don't worry. It's a, uh, <laughs> it's a very important concept to keep in mind as media mm -hmm. moves to virtual reality. I watched my first news report uh, in VR the other day, um, a little different. It wasn't like I was moving around in the scene, but it was shot in 360. It was a film about, uh, part of the war in Afghanistan and, or maybe Iraq. Um, and the footage, you're just so immersed now. 
our bodies are going, our bodies and our minds aren't gonna be able to tell the difference. And so the experience with Grand Theft Auto, if it's already that immersive and already that controlling, playing a game on a flat screen with a little controller, when it's your physical body moving through these actions and doing it, we've got a whole a, a level of problem about to occur yeah. that we need to solve at this 2d level you know i think <laughs> really, we also really have a, a solution in that i've been thinking about that a lot lately that the 3d model for for news and things like that is because you know you think about a documentary we, we believe it's reality but you also have to recognize that somebody's standing behind that camera somebody has a choice to see this particular angle versus seeing this particular angle so they're telling you what they want you to to connect with and i say the eyes are the windows to the soul if i want you to connect with a human being to have their subjective reality you've got to see their eyes so if i choose for you to see this this person's eyes when they're breaking down then you're going to emotionally connect with them right um so as the filmmaker i am controlling your emotions i'm controlling how i want you to perceive this a moment Whereas if I could put down a 360 camera in the middle of that interaction and you get to choose what it is that you're going to look at at this particular time, then you are really authoring the story versus being told what what it is that you believe mm-hmm. the story is. When I first got involved in, in filmmaking, I, w- I was originally doing uh, storytelling in communities where we'd go into communities, we'd uh, tell their stories through improvisation and allow them the opportunity to recreate the ending. To, to play at life. Uh, and it was really powerful because they were authoring the story. It wasn't like there was a, an, a documentarian coming in and saying, this is the story of this neighborhood. It was them telling their own stories. And that was deeply empowering. And so I, I look forward to technology being able to remove that, uh, that disconnect between the person telling the story and the person whose story it is. So in some ways, I think it's really great that we have these 360 VR cameras that, you know, we can just plop it down and you can say, I want to see this part. And then I want to see that part. And I want to be here or be there and really get to author the story yourself. Hmm. Interesting. Could we move some of the uh, objective nature or at least your ex- your excuse when you say, no, that that footage was. Yeah, the, was, uh, the editorial power. Uh, I don't think we have time to now go down the path of. How do we start? How do we deal with the fact that there's so much media and everyone's picking their own right. stories in a way that is also now damaging in that capacity? Yeah, but yeah I'd, I'd love to get into Nanook of the North and how documentary <laughs> was built around a, a fictional reality in the first place. Uh, but that's a whole nother topic for another time. I think if we leave you with anything, it, it's just where we end up so frequently, which is just, just try to be aware of this piece, right? Like think about... Hey, what was that? What was the story I just told myself? Driving around Los Angeles is great for this because when you are in stop and go traffic with stoplights and stuff, you just you're just surrounded by short stories. You're only at that corner long enough to see this tiny little interaction. That's just like, I wonder what that story the story is going on there. Moving on, <laughs> but but that perspective I think is a shift that's that's valuable. For just living life these days, because everything is a, is a story. Twitter's a story. Instagram's full of stories. Facebook's full of stories, and that's that's what you're eating all day. And there's a sort of this diet where maybe just boredom yeah. is what you need. Well, I, you know, I think that and that's okay. If I could say one last thing is that that there's one story that really matters, and it's who you are and where you're going. You know, and if you can figure out that story, you can figure out as as Simon Sinek says, what's your why. Uh, then that's what moves and motivates you to do everything that is you're doing in this in this meat 
bag of a life, right? <laughs> Whatever we want to call it. What, what, what do you call it again, Adam? The 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 meat space. <laughs> yeah, the meat computer, right? That's what motivates the meat computer. Meat, meat space. Computer. I like meat bag. Uh, so too. ask meat yourself space? this simple question: Is this story I'm telling myself right now serving me, or is it not serving me? Is it keeping me from going to where I want to go? Am I telling myself this story that this can't happen and that is actually making it not happen? Or am I telling myself a story that's empowering me to get to where I want to go? That's, I think, the most important usage of story is recognizing how it's helping you to become the person you want to be or do the thing that you want to achieve. Or are you continuing to tell your stories about how you're not good enough or this person has done you wrong or whatever? Those stories just aren't serving you. Flip the script. Love it. That's my well, pleasure, thanks, man. man. It was great for, talking to you guys. For coming to hang out for this. Um, yeah, great chat with you too, stuff. Kelly. And thanks, as always, to our backers on Patreon that throw us as little as a buck an episode to help keep this thing going. Uh, throw us that buck and you can hang out in our Slack workspace and see all the workspace nonsensical Slack. conversations that become episodes on this bad boy. Um, a rate and review on iTunes, you know, all the normal podcast post amble stuff but uh thanks for hanging out for another one this is engineering podcast i'm adam i'm brian and i'm kelly rock and roll everybody roll on rehearsal